Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. First of all, COVID confusion. We are entering, we think, the final phase in the COVID infection. However, confusion reigns. Governments are changing their position. What is the average person supposed to do when governments themselves reverse themselves just within a matter of days? Well, my personal attitude is to err on the side of caution. So I'll give you my two cents worth concerning what to do given the tremendous chaos with regards to COVID guidelines. And then the war in the Ukraine. The war is entering a new phase. In the first phase, we saw that the valiant fighters of the Ukrainian militia and army were able to beat back the Russian armada. However, that can't last forever. Now the Russians are changing tactics and they're trying to basically cut the Ukraine in half. They're trying to take the eastern and southern half of the Ukraine. And the question is, well, are the Ukrainians up for this battle, given the fact that the Russians steamrolled Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, Syria? Will they also steamroll the south and eastern portion of the Ukraine? And that, of course, could have enormous implications for Central Europe and, of course, the entire world. And also, bad news from outer space. Yes, outer space is full of bad news right now. First of all, the Russians. The Russians have said that because of the sanctions imposed because of the war in the Ukraine, they're going to pull out. They're going to pull out of the International Space Station unless the sanctions are lifted. So the very future of the International Space Station is in doubt. Also, NASA itself is beginning to give up the ghost when it comes to the space station. It has plans to deorbit, deorbit the International Space Station in 2031. Yes, a new verb has been added to the dictionary, deorbit. That means that this $150 billion machine will come down as a, like a meteor from outer space and burn up over the Pacific Ocean. And also bad news concerning the moon rocket. We have the Artemis, the booster rocket, the SL-1, is on the launch pad, and it has been delayed once again. Once again, there's been delays in the testing of the SLS booster rocket, which is going to take the Orion space capsule eventually around the moon. The timetable may have to be readjusted. We're talking about a complete unmanned ship to the moon around maybe 2024, maybe a piloted mission with a woman and a person of color soon after that, and then perhaps on to Mars after 2030. But what does it mean if we have so many setbacks? And then we'll say a few things about the latest concerning cancer and even Alzheimer's disease. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is COVID confusion. I can't blame anyone for being totally uh, bewildered by the fact that governments are changing their positions practically overnight. And what's the reason for that? Well, the reason for the changing in COVID guidelines is several fold. 
First of all, the virus itself is mutating much faster than we previously thought. Initially, two years ago, we thought that the mutation rate of the virus is quite slow and it would be possible to knock it out with one vaccine. Now we realize that it mutated much faster than we thought and new generations, new generations of vaccines are going to be required. So on one hand, we have the fact that the virus keeps on mutating, but on the other hand, we have the fact that the public is, well, sick and tired of all these restraints. You know, it's been two long years, two long years, and now people are saying enough is enough. And that's why we have so much confusion. The politicians don't know which way to go. There are different guidelines concerning airports. For example, on an airplane, perhaps you don't have to wear a mask anymore, but as soon as you land at the airport, you do have to put on the mask. Isn't that upside down? Well, here's my own personal point of view. And of course, you should talk to your local physician to get his or her point of view. But my point of view, for what it's worth, is that because there's a new mutations out there, because the virus is still mutating, that means that the Omicron virus is still something that we have to contend with. It is more infectious than we previously thought, but it is also perhaps less dangerous and less lethal than we previously thought. So what does that mean in terms of concrete recommendations? First of all, the recommendation is get your latest COVID shot. Some of you are headed for your second booster or your fourth COVID shot. By all means, get your fourth COVID shot. Second of all, perhaps outside you don't have to wear masks, but on subway, buses, airplanes, in closed quarters, a word of caution, it doesn't hurt to keep your mask on, even though the guidelines may say you can take your mask off when you are indoors. And also, if you are indoors, don't engage in long conversations, because we do know that the virus spreads not necessarily by droplets of saliva, but it spreads by aerosol, tiny microscopic droplets that you can't even see. So in other words, we're not out of the woods yet. In fact, the whole idea of herd mentality seems more and more distant. We're not close to hitting 70 to 80% of the entire population being vaccinated, plus the fact that the virus itself is mutating, so the previous versions of the vaccine may not be as effective as we previously thought. So in other words, a word to the wise. When in doubt, put on the mask. Also, the war in the Ukraine is going to a new deadly phase, and some people are saying that we could now be seeing the final last stages of the conflict between the overwhelming Russian might and the efforts by volunteers, by the militias, by the Ukrainian regular army to fend off the juggernaut from Russia. First of all, if you take a look at phases in this war, the first phase was, well, let's be frank about it, a disaster for the Russians. The Russians thought they could swallow up the Ukraine in one big, one big gulp, they thought that they could overwhelm the Iranian military and they would be welcomed as liberators when they took Kiev and Odessa and other major cities. Well, that didn't happen. The Russian military took a tremendous beating. At least seven generals, at least, have been killed 
by the Ukrainian forces. Many tanks were destroyed by anti-tank weapons. And the environment and the weather was not working in the favor of the Russians. First of all, the western part of the Ukraine, which was the battleground for phase one, the western part of the Ukraine is heavily forested, meaning that tanks had a hard time maneuvering and they had to use roads, roads which made them a sitting duck for guerrilla tactics. Drones, anti-tank weapons, hit-and-run tactics were able to stop the Russian juggernaut, and the Russian juggernaut itself had problems with logistics and supplies. It was a mess. So in other words, the Russians gave up simply taking Kiev, and now it's concentrating on the eastern and southern part of Ukraine, where things are reversed. In other words, the weather, the terrain, is working in favor of the Russians. First of all, the weather was not working in the favor of the Russians previously. The weather was cold, and the, the ground was there, thereby mushy, and tanks got caught in the mud. However, in the eastern part of the Ukraine, it's more like a conventional European battlefield where you get a clear shot, you don't have much forestation, the weather is not so bad. So in other words, all the disadvantages of the first phase are now working in favor of the Russians in the second phase. In the second phase, instead of drones and small handheld weapons, the Ukrainian military needs hardware large hardware, artillery pieces, uh, aircraft, and aircraft par spare parts. In other words, we're entering a new phase in the war. And this new phase could ultimately determine the fate of Central Europe. Because if the Russians are emboldened by the fact that they could roll over the Ukraine, then who's next? Think of all the other governments in Central Europe that are frightened by the fact that we have this revived Russian juggernaut. Already, Sweden and Finland have indicated that they may want to accelerate an admission to NATO. So, in other words, everything is in flux. Now, the Russian strategy, however, is the same, and that is mass murder. In other words, the tactics they used successfully in Chechia, Georgia, Syria, Crimea, the same tactics are being used again, and that is pulverize. Pulverize and flatten the cities, and if civilians get in the way, tough luck. Well, that's the way it is with the war in the Ukraine. And of course, it changes every day, every hour. And you have to admire the fact that the Ukrainian people, even though they're vastly outnumbered, outgunned on many levels, they're able to come back, and they're able to basically fight the Russian juggernaut to a standstill. So we'll have to wait and see how things play out. But again, the sad thing is that now the environmental factors are working in favor of the Russian military, while before in phase one, the environmental factors were working against the Russian strategy. And also, bad news from the space program, not just on one front, but many fronts. First bad news, the Russians have announced that they may pull out of the International Space Station if sanctions are not lifted. Well, of course, sanctions probably won't be lifted until there's a resolution of the Ukrainian crisis. 
which means that the very future of the International Space Station is in doubt. If the Russians pull out, that's going to leave a big gap. But realize that NASA itself has plans to deorbit the International Space Station. Why? Cash. The International Space Station has so far cost $150 billion. That's a lot of money. And it means that if the nations of the world can't support it, it means that the ISS may have to be deorbited by 2031. That's the deadline. And if the Russians pull out earlier, perhaps the International Space Station may be deorbited even earlier than 2031. And the plan is to use retro rockets on the International Space Station so that it will smash itself into the Pacific Ocean like a meteor from outer space. Think about that. A $150 billion piece of hardware becoming space junk landing in the Pacific Ocean. Well, there are plans, however, to salvage, perhaps commercially salvage parts of the International Space Station. NASA is entertaining bids, entertaining bids from the private sector. They may want to salvage some of the International Space Station because otherwise, what a waste. What a waste of hardware. It means that after that, the only space station will be Chinese in outer space. And then more bad news. More bad news from the moon. We have the Artemis moon rocket, which is poised to send astronauts to the moon, but it's been plagued by a series of delays. First of all, the booster rocket, the SLS, was supposed to be tested by now, but numerous delays have taken place. They found leaks, they found anomalies. As a consequence, the booster rocket, the SL1, the SLS, is not being tested yet. This means that it could delay the timetable for going to the moon. First, you have to test the rockets to make sure that they even work. Second, you have to have a trial run. In other words, you have to execute a figure eight to go around the moon, completely around the moon, with an unmanned space capsule. Then you send astronauts, living astronauts, to the moon, perhaps uh, sometime around 2025, 2026, which will include a woman and a person of color, and then perhaps, if everything goes well, a space station. A new space station will be created called the Gateway, which will orbit not the Earth, it'll orbit the Moon. And what is the purpose of the Gateway? Well, the purpose of the Gateway space station is to have a permanent presence on the Moon so that we simply don't go there and forget about it and come back. And second of all, from there to build a space rocket which will take us to Mars. At least that's the game plan. So once again, the game plan is, first of all, test the booster rocket to just make sure it works. That's where we are right now. Then send an unmanned spacecraft completely around the moon in a figure eight pattern. Third, piloted mission will take place with astronauts, a woman and a person of color going to the moon. And three, landing on the moon. So that's the timetable. And after that, the goal is to create the Gateway International Space Station, which will permanently orbit the moon. And the purpose of that is to then create 
the rocket which will eventually go to the planet Mars sometime after 2030. At least, that's the timetable. Also, news from the medical front. Liquid biopsies are now legal. It turns out that the FDA has now legally authorized doctors to give people liquid biopsies for cancer. Now, let me explain. Today, you can go to the doctor's office, get a blood test, and the doctor says everything is okay, but then later you find out you have cancer. Why? Because blood tests are not accurate enough to pick up traces of cancer until now. The FDA now has approved liquid biopsies, which can detect, in principle, up to 50, count them, 50 different types of cancers. And that's just today. Think of the future. Think of how many different varieties of cancer there are. You see, we now know what cancer is. Cancer, we thought, may be caused by poisons and pollution and radiation and cigarette smoke and all sorts of things. But the bottom line is, cancer is a genetic disease. All these so-called environmental insults create defects, errors in our genome, and some of them trigger cancer. So wouldn't it be great if a simple blood test, a simple routine blood test, can detect cancer cells, cancer enzymes, cancer proteins in your blood to alert you that you may eventually get a tumor. In other words, in the future, perhaps the word tumor will disappear from the English language because in the future, perhaps a saliva test would be sufficient to detect traces of cancer enzymes, cancer genes, and cancer cells circulating in your body. Now, what is the downside of this? One potential downside is that these tests are so accurate, they pick up cancers that are relatively harmless. In other words, there are cancers which won't kill you, and in fact, you may die of natural causes before these cancers can do you damage, but this test will pick up everything. So in other words, we're still in the early stages of liquid biopsies. It has to be tested and we have to make sure that it gives you reliable results. But one thing that we have to worry about is the fact that if you do get tested, it may pick up cancers that are, in some sense, harmless. In some sense, they're not going to kill you, or they're not going to kill you over many, many decades. But it's something to think about. Plus, there are more than 50 types of cancers. Eventually, we'll have uh, tests liquid biopsies that could pick up hundreds of different kinds of cancers because, of course, cancers are ordinary cells that are mutated. But think about it for a moment. A simple blood test. Eventually, I even think that perhaps your toilet could become smart. That is, every time you use the toilet, it'll sample your bodily fluids and detect cancer and tell you that you have cancer cells growing in your body, locate the position of these cancer cells, and give you treatment years before a tumor even forms. I mean, think about that. And also, on the medical front, Alzheimer's is in the news. As I reported before, people are beginning to realize that the amyloid protein, which is found in the brains of people with cancers, uh, may 
signal the presence of what are called prions. So let me explain. In every biology book, we learn that there are two kinds of germs. There's viruses and there are bacteria and they replicate. That's why they're so dangerous. They attach themselves to your body, they replicate and they can kill you. That's why we fear these things. However, there is a third, a third contagion that won the Nobel Prize when it was discovered by a person who defied conventional wisdom. These are prions. Prions are proteins. Now, protein molecules were not thought to be infectious. But see, these protein molecules are misshapen. They are renegade. And as a consequence, when they touch other proteins, they cause them to fold incorrectly. And then instead of, ha instead of having one incorrect protein, you have two. They in turn can touch other protein molecules. They fold incorrectly. And all of a sudden, you have a contagion. And so these are called prions. At first, as I mentioned, scientists thought the theory was bunk. But we now realize that protein, that prions are real and Alzheimer's may be caused by a prion. First of all, when you do an autopsy on somebody with Alzheimer's, the brain is usually all gummed up with this amyloid protein, beta and tau amyloid proteins. However, some people um, who have gummed up brains do not have Alzheimer's. In other words, there's no one-to-one -one correspondence between amyloid proteins and having the symptoms of Alzheimer's. So, in other words, it's more complicated than that. Now we realize that there are at least two different types of amyloid protein. When you analyze the molecular structure of the amyloid protein, proteins are curled up. That is, they have chains of amino acids that curl clockwise and, or counterclockwise. And when you analyze the amyloid proteins of somebody with Alzheimer's, you find that there are at least two, two types of amyloid proteins, one that curls up clockwise and one that curls up counterclockwise. And much to their surprise, they found out that of the two, only one of them causes Alzheimer's. So this could explain the mystery. The mystery of why there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between amyloid proteins and having the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Perhaps you have the so-called good version of amyloid protein, so your brain is all gummed up, but it's harmless because, of course, some of these amyloid proteins are created naturally by the human body. So, in other words, it could mean that we now understand why it is that some people can have amyloid proteins and have no symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Now, what does that mean for the future? It means for the future that we'll perhaps we'll find ways to flush out the bad protein and keep the good protein inside the body. You see, the brain by itself, every 48 hours, flushes out a lot of these amyloid proteins. And therefore, it's something that we should concentrate on to flush out the bad protein, which could then clear the brain of the bad protein, which is a prion, which it can infect the body and cause Alzheimer's disease. At least that's the working theory now, but of course that has to be verified. Now, it turns out that these diseases caused by prions 
Perhaps just don't affect Alzheimer's. Perhaps Parkinson's. Perhaps ALS, which afflicted the cosmologist Stephen Hawking. Perhaps other diseases of the elderly are caused by prions. This is a game changer. We used to think that Parkinson's, well, gee, you know, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know how to stop it. It's just there. It afflicts the elderly, causes tremors, tremors in the body. Michael J. Fox, for example, has Parkinson's disease and it's incurable. Now scientists are realizing that maybe, maybe Parkinson's is also caused by prions and ALS is also caused by prions. So in other words, this is a game changer. We're now realizing that there's a new kind of disease out there which afflicts the elderly, which is previously incurable, but now realizing that they are prionic means that perhaps, just perhaps, we might find a therapy for them. And thinking about therapy, there's a new kind of therapy for cancer that is getting widespread recognition called immunotherapy. Now, of course, if you have cancer, then the options are limited. You can have surgery, you can have chemotherapy, you can have radiation, and certain drugs. However, not much more. Now we realize that the body, your body has an immune system, which if you tweak it a bit, can recognize cancer. Now your body, for the most part, cannot recognize cancer. Now why is that? Because you see, cancer cells are not foreigners. Cancer cells don't come in from outer space or from the outside. Cancer cells are your own cells, your own cells that turn bad, rogue cells, cells that forgot how to die. Because cells normally have a certain finite lifespan and they die to make way for the next generation of healthy cells. Cancer cells are in some sense cells that have forgotten how to die. They just proliferate. They are immortal. They simply make copies of themselves until they make a tumor. These tumors in turn afflict bodily functions and then you die. That's why cancer is so lethal. But if cancer cells are your own cells gone rogue, then why not boost your immune system so that it can recognize these renegade cells? And that's what immunotherapy is all about. Immunotherapy takes blood from your body, isolates it and identifies the cancer mutation, and then it alters the genetics of your blood cells so that it can recognize the cancer cell and then you injected it back into the body. So in other words, this is a way to help the body's own immune system tackle something which is a killer called cancer by altering the genome of the white corpuscles so they can recognize cancer. Cancer cells can in fact be recognized by your own body if you can alter the white corpuscles in your blood. And that's what immunotherapy is all about. It's a new kind of therapy. It's getting widespread testing and the results are, in some sense, amazing. Some people with lethal forms of cancer that have spread, that it is, quote, incurable, that it's too late. For these individuals, immunotherapy can then bring them back from the brink of death. This is amazing.
However, I should point out that there are some defects. In some trials, some people have died as a consequence. So in other words, we're still in the learning phase, but it's a new form of therapy. Think about it, a new form of therapy that boosts your own immune system to tackle cancer. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, I have 5 million fans on Facebook. I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to continue our discussion about the future of the space program. You know, some people think that we are headed for a new crossroads, a new soul-searching crossroads in the history of science because of the fact that, first of all, the Russians probably will pull out of the International Space Station because of all the chaos caused by the invasion of the Ukraine. Plus the fact that NASA itself has stated that by 2031, by 2031, the International Space Station will be deorbited. It'll become a piece of space junk, a gigantic flaming meteor from outer space that plunges into the Pacific Ocean. $150 billion of hardware becoming space junk at the bottom of the ocean. And the question is, what next? What next for the space program? And so the space program could be headed for an identity crisis without the International Space Station. Well, with us today to discuss the politicization and the exploration of outer space is Professor uh, Jeffrey Hoffman. He's a professor at MIT and also a former astronaut. In fact, he was on that historic mission that helped to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. Remember back then when the Hubble Space Telescope was first launched into outer space? The mirrors were ground incorrectly. And so the media had a, had a holiday making fun of the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope was nearsighted. Well, the way to correct that was to send a second mission into outer space with brave astronauts who would do the repair mission. That, of course, was a real, was a real delicate operation but uh, Jeffrey Hoffman and his crew were successful in salvaging the Hubble Space Telescope, which went on to create space history. 
Well, now we're at a new crossroads because of the fact that the Russians may be pulling out of the International Space Station and without funding. It means that the International Space Station may become space junk flaming from outer space. And back then, when the shuttle broke up on national television, seven brave astronauts died in that explosion. Afterwards, there was something called the Augustine Report, which tried to assess how much effort we should put into the space program. Should we go to the moon, onto Mars? And some people think that just like the Augustine Report, perhaps a new report will be issued soon about the new direction for NASA. So once again, we're going to rebroadcast an earlier interview we did with Dr. Jeffrey Hoffman, professor at MIT, and also former astronaut who was involved with the repair mission on the Hubble Space Telescope. Professor Hoffman, as a youth, how did you first get interested in becoming an astronaut and also astronautics? Well, I grew up in uh, the New York area, and my parents always used to take me to lots of cultural activities, you know, concerts, museums, and the like, including the Hayden Planetarium. And what it was that somehow clicked with me and astronomy and stars, planets, and the like, it's hard to say, but uh, they recognized it. My father especially had sort of been interested in astronomy, so he encouraged my interest, and that was in the 1950s, which was just what we would call the dawn of the space age. It was before the launch of Sputnik, but there was lots on television, in, in magazines, uh, newspapers about the coming space age, and I found it very exciting. You know, I learned about rockets and satellites and, and of course, the idea of human space flights. Of course, at the time, there was no such thing as an astronaut except for Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. But I guess my interest goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. Okay. So let's say a kid today wants to become an astronaut. What do you do? Do you write to NASA? You take courses in becoming an astronaut. What are the steps you take to become an astronaut? Well, if you're a, a youngster still in school, really the, the, the best thing to do is uh, to make sure that you get a good technical education, which means you know, your courses in science and math and technology and, and engineering, and uh, that's what will prepare you. Once you get to the point where you've uh, completed your education, you have some professional experience behind you, yeah, it's an application process. Um, NASA will on demand, send you a an application which you will fill out. Uh, you know, astronauts, believe it or not, are civil servants, so it's it's a civil servant job application that you fill out. But you know, there's certain uh, places where they ask for special qualifications for this job, and that, of course, is the critical thing because astronauts uh, have a lot of different responsibilities. Um, and there is a certain amount of specialization. So um, a lot of astronauts have gotten into the program through the military by becoming uh, test pilots, something, you know, high-performance jet aviation, something you can really only do in the military. That was not the way I got in. I was a scientist working as a, as a high-energy astronomer doing X-ray astronomy and sending satellites, uh, satellite-borne telescopes up into space. And um, when NASA asked for 
a new group of astronauts to fly on the space shuttle. This was back in the late 70s when they were getting ready to start flying the shuttle. And they said, we don't just need pilots. We want uh, scientists and engineers as well. Uh, I applied and, and I was accepted. And that's what's been going on ever since. So in principle, somebody could go to the website of NASA, nasa.gov, and <laughs> fill out an application and apply pretty much online? Is that what you're saying? It is, a, it is an online application. However, it's not uh, an open application. NASA periodically calls for uh, astronaut applications as part of a selection process. In fact, we just recently finished a selection process and took, I think, uh, eight new astronauts. So I suspect there's not going to be another selection for a couple of years. Okay. And how many hours did you spend in outer space with the space shuttle? Well, um, all of my flights were on the shuttle. I've made five trips into space on the shuttle uh, for a total of about 50 days in space. And what are some of the problems that you face? We, we hear about weightlessness and nausea, but uh, what are the other kinds of uh, problems that astronauts face in space? Well, the most serious problem is to accomplish your mission. I mean, that's, that's why you're going there in the first place. For instance, um, my, my most significant mission, I guess, would be, would be the uh, initial rescue and repair mission to the Hubble Space Telescope back in 1993. Um, I had already had three space flights. I knew that I wasn't bothered by space sickness. Uh, I knew my way around. But the challenge of actually fixing Hubble was, uh, was severe, and in many ways the future of NASA's human spaceflight program was depending on that. So, so there was a lot of pressure on us. Um, there are a lot of physical challenges in spaceflight. The transition from our normal Earth gravity environment to a weightless environment produces a lot of stress. Uh, you mentioned space motion sickness. That's one problem. Um, your your whole um, muscular system has to be exercised much more than on the ground because being in weightlessness is a little bit like lying in bed. Uh, you don't get much exercise. Now, I have to say, on your average shuttle flight, which only lasts two weeks or so, these things are not so critical. I mean, you can lie in bed for two weeks and then get up and, and you might be a little bit stiff, but you're not going to have deteriorated that much. When people go up to the space station for six months at a time, it's a lot more serious. They have to spend two to three hours every day in very serious exercise, cardiovascular, upper body, resistive stress exercises. If they don't do that, uh, their musculoskeletal skeletal systems are going to deteriorate. We know that uh, people also lose calcium from their bones. We still don't have a long-term solution to that, although there are some promising research leads. So yeah, they, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, there's, there's uh, I, I, I lecture for, for many hours about the effects of space on the human body, but you know, basically, it is a stressful situation, and you need to keep yourself healthy enough so that when you come back to Earth, you will be able to function. Okay, and I also understand that the Russian astronauts spending up to a year in outer space, when they come down, uh, they're barely able to, to walk. They can almost crawl, they crawl, basically, when they come back there's, from space. There's a space huge space. variability. Uh, you're absolutely right. There have been uh, 
people, even after six months, who have not been able to stand up and walk on their own. It's a, through a combination of muscular weakness, uh, but also the um, disorientation of your balance system, you know, your inner ear, which, which helps you keep your balance as seriously affected in weightlessness. Now, all, you, you get this ability back, but the longer you've been in space, the longer it takes to recover from it. Okay. Now, a lot of people have been talking about the Augustine Report, which says that, well, there's not enough money to sustain a vigorous and healthy manned space program to the moon and to Mars. They talk about more modest uh, goals, like perhaps landing on an asteroid or perhaps the moons of Mars. First of all, what are your overall thoughts about the Augustine Report, and what are your thoughts about perhaps landing on an asteroid or the moons of Mars? Well, first of all, we ought to be clear that you don't actually land on an asteroid because an asteroid doesn't have enough gravity to really constitute landing on it in the way that you would land on the moon, which mm -hmm. has about one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. You really sort of fly up and dock with an asteroid like you would dock with another spacecraft in Earth orbit. But having said that, um, we have to go back a step or two. You know, we've been flying the shuttle for nearly 30 years now in Earth orbit. We had an incredible capability for space exploration in the Apollo program. I mean, the Saturn V rocket was, was unbelievably capable. We had a whole set of hardware which allowed us to get to the moon, and we could have used that to do many other things beyond Earth orbit, but we basically threw it all away. There were political decisions made um, also tied into the economics and the Vietnam War and so on, what won't go into past history. But we basically had this incredible capability to do these things in space, and we've lost it. Um, the shuttle has, has been an extremely capable vehicle. Uh, it's far from perfect. It's uh, not nearly as, uh, as, as uh, economical to fly as people had hoped, nor can we fly it as frequently. And, of course, it's not as safe as we would like it to be. But nevertheless, it's allowed us to do some absolutely extraordinary things in space, but only in low Earth orbit. This has sort of culminated these last 30 years with the construction of the International Space Station, which is now essentially complete. There's a few more flights to bring up spare parts and the like, but that's been a, an extraordinary undertaking on an international level. But... After the loss of the Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003, there was a um, commission which was studying the accident, and they pointed out that, you know, what what is the motivating factor for human spaceflight that when when it's supported by the government? Why should the government be supporting astronauts in space? And ultimately. The answer they came up with, which I agree with, is exploration. We're pushing the boundary. We are expanding the realm of humanity, and, and the U.S. Um, should maintain world leadership in, in this endeavor. Well, um, that led to the Bush administration in 2004 uh, establishing what they called the New Vision for Space Exploration, where we would, in fact, retire the space shuttle, uh, build a new launch system, go back to the moon, eventually go on to explore Mars, which everybody kind of agrees 
is the ultimate goal of human exploration in space, at least that we can imagine given, given the technology which is available to us. And he promised NASA uh, a reasonable increase in their budget to support that. So NASA started on a program to build these new rockets and design the equipment you need to land on the moon and, and work there and so on and so forth. But the money was never forthcoming. And so the program has been slipping and slipping. And I think the Augustine Commission performed a very uh, necessary service by essentially calling uh, calling the game and saying, look, um, at the at the budget level that NASA currently has, it can't do this exploration program. The very best that we could do would be to, to build this uh, Ares-1 rocket, which which only will take us to low Earth orbit. Um, and uh, even at the rate we're going, it won't be ready until the middle of the next decade, by which time it was not even clear whether the space station would, would still be in operation because NASA had not included continued space station operations after 2016. Well, the commission said, look, that doesn't make sense. I mean, this is a huge international undertaking. It's just getting started to do its useful work. It just doesn't make sense to to bring it down after only a few years. So it's probably going to be kept in orbit at least till the end of the next decade, and who knows what beyond. But that's that's another several billion dollars a year out of NASA's budget, which wasn't even accounted for. So what they basically said was, at NASA's current budget level, there's not going to be human space exploration beyond Earth orbit. If you want to do it, you got to put a little money into the pot, a few billion dollars a year. This is the challenge to the Obama administration. We, we have yet to find out how they're going to react. If you do that, you have various options. Um, the problem with the original plan of going directly to the moon is we need to build a heavy lift launch vehicle, sort of the modern equivalent of the Saturn V. That's a requisite no matter what we do beyond the Earth. In order to go to the moon soon, the way we did in Apollo, you have to build the lunar lander and, and all the other lunar hardware at the same time that you're building this heavy lift launch vehicle. Again, we can't afford it. So if we can only afford to build one new vehicle at a time, let's build the heavy lift launch vehicle first, and then after we've gone through the development costs, we can start working on the lunar lander and the other lunar hardware we need. But while that's being built, let's use this heavy launcher to take people beyond Earth orbit and get some experience with long spaceflight outside the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. And that's where the ideas have come from of visiting an asteroid or going to one of the moons of Mars or various other things that could possibly be done. So all of these are various options, but they all require a modest increase in NASA's budget. Without that increase, we're just going to go back and forth to the space station. Okay, so let's take them one at a time, okay? First of all, to go to an asteroid, what's the advantage? And I guess you can save on fuel because you don't have to 
overcome the gravity of the asteroid, right? Exactly, so and that, that that's the whole point. In, in order to land on a large body, relatively large body like the moon, you need to build a special lander. And it's even more difficult to land on Mars because you need to build a very large heat shield to protect you coming through the Mars atmosphere. Um, but and, uh, the moons of Mars are, are much smaller than, than the moon, and asteroids are even smaller. They, they have a very low gravity, and, and you can just sort of fly up and, and dock with them without any additional hardware. And there's great interest in, uh, we call them asteroids, they're actually, we should call them near-Earth objects. The asteroids are primarily in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, but periodically some of them come and, and actually come pretty near the Earth. There's a lot of interest in these, both scientifically, the idea that we'd like to, to know much more precisely what they're made of, but also from the point of uh, protecting our planet against a potential impact. We'd like to find out, uh, you know, how, how could you attach something to uh, a near-Earth object? Some of these things we believe may be solid. Others might be just rubble piles, sort of hanging together by very weak gravity and, and surface uh, chemistry. So um, there's a lot of interesting things to be learned, and, and a human mission to a near-Earth object in one mission could learn far more than, than uh, a, a series of relatively small robotic missions, although we certainly should be sending robotic missions, I think, uh, as well. Now, the Bush administration had hoped that by 2020 we'd go back to the moon with a manned mission. That's going to be pushed back who knows when. Well, the but Augustine Commission's conclusion was that this was possible, that the, the program that NASA originally set out on could have been done had it been funded. But it wasn't funded, and that's why it's not going to happen on that time scale. Okay. But now let's look into the future past 2020. If we do get the funding and if we do go back to the moon, some people want a permanent presence on the moon. That is a permanent moon base. However, then there are other problems, for example, radiation and shielding. Some people think we should go underground, perhaps into a, uh, an old volcano vent and create a, a moon base under the soil. So what are the problems that astronauts would face in the farther future if they have a permanent base on the moon? Well, um, the problem of radiation uh, is not limited to, to a permanent base on the moon. If you're, if you're flying out to Mars uh, or going to visit a near-Earth object or to one of the Lagrangian points to service a, a satellite, you're, anytime you go outside the Earth's magnetic field, you're subjected to the full force of both the galactic cosmic radiation and anything that our own sun uh, happens to hurl at us if they have a uh, solar flare, which you know we call them coronal mass ejections. Um, the solar radiation is primarily protons at modest energies. It is possible to shield against them. You do need special shielding, and we've uh, designed um, essentially water tanks, you, you know, on any space mission, whether you're on the lunar surface or, or in free space, you need a rather large water supply. And if you package it in such a way that it forms a shield around you and you can sort of get into it if you have a solar flare and, you know, stay in there for a day or two, however long you need until the radiation level goes down, 
we think that that would protect you against all but the very largest solar flares. Galactic cosmic rays are much higher energy, and in addition to protons, you get a significant number of, uh, of, of, of uh, heavier nuclei. We can't shield against those with current technology of, that, that we can actually... I mean, you'd need so much lead surrounding you that, that we'd never get off the ground. However, um, there are a lot of um, advances being made in the study of radiation protection. Um, let's remember that, that uh, from a solar flare, you could get acute radiation poisoning and die on the spot. And so you've got to shield yourself if you have a big solar flare. Galactic cosmic radiation is it's basically a low dose, but you receive it over a long period of time, and it gradually builds up. Um, the long-term problem with that is that it damages your cells and eventually can lead to an increased probability of developing cancer, and that's what we're worried about. However, it's also, you know, our ability to detect cancer early and to treat it is constantly improving, and, and so it could well be that, that this will turn out not to be uh, an insurmountable problem. There's also uh, drugs being developed which look like they increase our uh, ability to resist radiation damage because our body does have the ability to repair DNA after it's damaged, and there may be pharmaceuticals that can improve that process. So I think in the long run, we, we will solve that problem. We certainly have to. If we're serious about space exploration, we've got to be able to deal with, with the radiation. Now, science fiction writers would have us believe that the moon has lots of commercial and military value. We'll mine the moon and we'll have military bases on the moon. But isn't the moon rather impractical? I mean, economically speaking, I, it would cost too much money to bring minerals back from the moon. We have You're absolutely the right. Uh, right now, given the cost of, of space transportation, if the moon were made of solid gold, it would not pay to go and mine it. So I think the, the idea of mining the moon or any other celestial body to bring the material back to Earth at the moment is impractical. On the other hand, if you want to go live on another uh, celestial body like the moon or Mars, being able to live off the land and actually use the material that's there. We know that, uh, you know, Mars is the best example, and I, and I think it's the, one of the reasons why it's our ultimate goal is because more than any other place in the solar system, it's a place where we think we can actually go and live. I mean, it has hydrocarbons, it has uh, oxygen, it has ample supplies of water, so with all those things, if you just have enough energy to process them, you can basically live. And, uh, and that's very exciting, the idea that, that humanity could actually establish a beachhead on another world and, and actually live there. Whether or not we want to do that on the moon, you'll get people expressing a whole spectrum of views. My, my own feeling is that we ought to go and explore all the different places on the moon get to know what's there, and then we can make a decision. Is it, is it useful to put a permanent scientific base on the moon? And if so, where should that base be? I'd like to explore the entire moon before we make that decision. Okay, and then moving on to Mars. It only took about three days to go to the moon. 
a moon mission would only last uh, a week or so. However, a mission to Mars would take uh, minimum, what, six months to go to Mars? And... Well, with our current propulsion technology, that's true. And I think um, one, one thing that uh, NASA ought to be investing in is, and it's not just NASA because it's actually tied in with uh, fusion power, is uh, forms of advanced plasma propulsion. NASA is supporting some work in that, and, and it's potentially very exciting. Um, if you have sufficient electrical power to run a uh, plasma generator, then you leak the plasma out the back of, of the engine at very, very high velocities. You, you have a very potentially very efficient rocket engine that could get you to Mars in a month or so, uh, depending on the amount of electrical power you have available. That would change the ballgame entirely. So, um, yes, with our current chemical rockets, it would take a half a year to get to Mars, and that's a long time. Uh, if you could get there much faster, then you have much less radiation exposure and you a lot less uh, life support equipment you have to take with you. It, it, it's really a game changer. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Our special guest today was Professor Jeffrey Hoffman, professor at MIT and former astronaut who was involved with repairing the Hubble Space Telescope. And go to my website if you want to know more about exploration, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org is the website. And on Facebook, we have 5 million fans. And get a copy of my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Good day.